giant robots smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and the business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel. And I'm your other host, Lindsay Christensen. Chad, this podcast uses cookies uh, to enhance your experience. You can learn more about them by visiting our privacy policy. Do you accept? What happens if I don't accept? Uh, yeah, I guess I accept. Reluctantly? Yeah. What What are you doing with my data, Lindsay? I, I'm going to enhance your experience, didn't I? I, I told uh, oh, you that. okay. Yeah, I should have read the privacy policy more carefully. And today we're going to talk about data. What does data mean? Everything has data. Data is just information. Right. So we should be more specific about our data. Okay. Because there's a lot of, of data. I think what we're really going to be digging into is product data or maybe broader than product data, the concept of proprietary data and mm-hmm. how that influences a company or drives a company. And I think we're seeing this more and more. And from what I see, there's kind of this frantic scramble in the startup world to figure out like what you're take on data is going to be, what your proprietary data is going to be, uh, and the idea of having like a data moat, your use of data or this unique data that you have that no one else has that is going to be what really drives your company to be successful. Yeah, I think it used to be that people didn't think about that at all. It was mostly what your product or your service was going to be that you directly offered customers and that was where the sort of like the thought stopped about what made your company valuable or, or that kind of thing. And I, I actually wonder whether the change is caused by companies that exist solely based on it. So they're actually giving their product or service away and how they actually make money or what makes them valuable is the data or and whether that started a trend, which then, you know, other companies picked up. Or whether it's just the capability around data has gotten to the point where it's democratized so that lots of companies can manage lots of data and do something with it. Machine learning is getting to the point where it's possible for regular companies to be using it and whether it's coming from the technology side of things. I actually don't know the answer, but it's something I've been wondering about where, like, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing. Right. And at the end of the day, it's probably become a combination mm-hmm. of the two. And one, once you have like a few success stories on either side, then there's a lot of motivation to like, how, how could we replicate that in our niche of the world, both on the investor side and I think the founder side. Right. One of the pitfalls that I see, you know, we get lots of people coming to us with ideas that, you know, they're filling out our contact form saying what they're going to work on. They're trying to start a new business. And I think one of the pitfalls that people can get into is where you're focused pretty exclusively on that, on the data that you're going to be able to have and not on having an actual good product that people want to use or that you're so focused on like, we're going to use artificial intelligence to solve this problem. And one of the big problems that you have with that, when you lead with artificial intelligence, if you don't have data off of which to build your artificial intelligence machine learning model, then 
you can't get to the point where the artificial intelligence is doing anything. With machine learning today, you need to train off of some data. And so if the data is going to be proprietary, if you can't get that from anywhere because you're creating a new product, the sheer fact of the matter is you're going to need to build the product without machine learning to begin with to start collecting the data that would then be used to train the machine learning model in the future. You either you need to find the data elsewhere. So I think those are the two common pitfalls is leading with the data and being less concerned about building a product that people want to actually use is going to set you up to never get the data in the first place. And the other is just thinking about artificial intelligence as the solution to some problem that you're not going to be able to solve without non-artificial intelligence to begin with. So you think it's better to start with kind of the typical product features solving problems for users and then thinking long term about you know what what kind of data is coming from this what should we start to maybe try to collect but almost secondary to the product offering at first at least at first and and really I'm you know talking about the very early days like you can have an idea about what machine learning might be able to do for you or what this valuable data you're going to collect is But if you take your eye off of creating something that people actually want to use that solves a real problem for them, you're never going to get to that point. You're going to have a failure of a product. And I I, I think that's really important to not overlook. Yeah, I've seen it recommended that you think about your data and your data strategy the same as the product, like Mm -hmm. with a product roadmap, with a backlog of ideas and work on it incrementally very closely alongside product. Yeah. And realizing that there's an interplay between them, they're not two independent roadmaps either. Like they influence each other. So you say, okay, here's where we want to be for the data. What do we need to do this quarter for the product to be able to be positioning ourselves from two quarters from now to have to be able to do something with the data? There's a one client of ours that They knew that the data that they had would be valuable, but they don't know in which ways necessarily it it is going to be valuable. You know, we've collecting a lot of data about how our customers are using our product, what they're doing, that kind of thing. And now looking at that data, analyzing it and pulling out meaningful things is essentially a research project. And I think what a lot of customers have uh, that we've worked with have found useful is You know, research projects can be expensive. They can be open-ended. They can last for a long time without getting results. So a lot of the people that I've talked to have found good success in essentially time boxing those periods where you're saying, okay, we've got something here. Let's sit down for a week and figure out what we can pull out of it that's meaningful or depending on the size of it, but just like asking the team, what's a reasonable amount of time to spend on this? before we see results. I've also experienced use cases where in doing that exercise, you then also have a plan to kind of release the insights as marketing, essentially, Mm -hmm. um, thought leadership or lead generation. Mm -hmm. So there's another benefit you can see from it in sharing those findings from that data. And you're also kind of, you're starting to build the case of yourselves as having this proprietary data, this unique insight into 
the industry, the workflow, whatever it may be. Yeah. And I think that people often forget that data doesn't necessarily mean you immediately know things. You need you need to do analysis on that data. So that's the difference between like data and the insights that you get from that data. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. The the data is raw information that isn't super useful, but like what can you understand from it that can help you make strategic decisions or can help someone else make strategic mm-hmm. decisions is where the value really lies. That's one thing if if you think about, you know, we're mixing lots of different topics here and it might make sense to step back and pull them out, but there's a lot of similarities between you, we have a bunch of data and we want to pull insights from it. The process that you go through with if you want to implement machine learning is very similar. You have a bunch of data. You don't just magically like apply <laughs> machine learning to it. You need the data and then you need to do something to essentially pull the insights out of that data and train a model, a machine learning model based on the either the data or the insights from that data. For example, we built a product, we wrote about it on the blog. It was a, you know, OCR software being able to visually recognize things. The data that uh, the, you know that goes into that to be able to manually pull out text from an image is a bunch of images of text. <laughs> but you can't just give a bunch of images of text to the machine learning software, the library, and have it automatically pull the text out. Like you need to also give it a bunch of images that you've already done the text for. Those are the you know the insights, and you gotta train your model based on human or some other system showing the machine learning model the successful results so it can then learn how to make successful results of its own and not all data necessarily has to lead to ai or machine learning so when does it make sense to explore that next step what I've learned about when it, and you know, I'm by no means an expert. We consult on this stuff. And to be quite honest, most of the companies that we work with aren't at the point where it makes sense for them to apply machine learning to it. And the reason why they're not is because either they don't have enough data to begin with, or they haven't reached the threshold where machine learning, they can show that it will make it better. So If you are able to implement a really naive sorting algorithm, for example, like data is coming in and you say, like, we're going to split up the data in these attributes, you know, price, color, number of widgets. And if it matches these things, then we'll score it a 10. And if it matches these things, we'll score it a five. And if it matches these other set, we'll score it a two. And you just naively do that algorithm and it works. If you're going to apply machine learning to that same problem, you need to show that your machine learning model is better than your naive model. And so many companies in their early stages don't know whether it's actually better. Like they haven't done enough work. They haven't done enough data. They don't know the outcomes of that scoring to know whether the machine learning model is actually going to score it better or not. Mm-hmm. So that tends to be the line is like you have existing data flowing in, 
you've implemented a whole system that is working and you're going to then use machine learning to try to make it work better. Does it make it work faster too? Depending on what your thing that you're doing is, you might be having people do it in the first place. And so certainly if you're going from people are doing this to computers are doing this, that should be a lot faster. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned a few attributes and then the machine learning component was scoring. Mm -hmm. What are the types of, I don't know if you would call them like product events that startups might be tracking as potential areas that they could be aggregating valuable data? This is a a really good question, not only because it's valuable to do, but it's it's also touches on a mistake that is really hard to avoid, which is instrumenting the right capturing of stuff so that when you then want to figure something out, you actually have the data to do it. And I've made the mistake working on products and lots of our customers make the mistake is like you do your best job instrumenting everything out. Then when it comes time to analyze it, you say, uh, we weren't collecting the right thing. And now we need to tweak what we're collecting. And it's going to be another six months until we have the right data to know. whether. And that's super annoying to the development team. It's super annoying to the business stakeholders. <laughs> like It's real lost time. And so figuring out what you should be tracking, the only foolproof way to do that is to understand what you want to get in advance, like what outcomes you want to get in advance. And that is almost impossible. Like you can't, we already just got, we just got done talking about how you don't necessarily know what your data is right. going to show you. So in my experience, the people who do it, there's basically two things like instrument as much as possible and be tracking as much as possible. But then to understand what your business is. So for example, if you're an e-commerce business, what are the levers that you might either want to pull on your own product to make it perform better or what might be valuable about the people using your product that would be good. So we can't know everything in advance, but we can using our business and thinking through it, it's worth thinking through what things might be valuable to us. So we're working on a food delivery application now, and we want to track everything from how customers add items to their cart, how long it takes them to add to the cart, what items they add and what items they remove as they're placing their food order. So there's a couple of different reasons why we want to do that. One is that information can help us make the product better. If we learn that, boy, people are taking a really long time to like fill out their cart and place an order, let's dig into why that is. But from a data perspective, like we can also say like that is one of the most important things about our business. If we can have people place bigger orders or we can understand why they add something and then remove it from the cart and we can better improve or like there's something there like that we might be able to use data to make our business more efficient or whatever. So thinking through those two different things, there's both a product standpoint and a business standpoint to be able to collect that data. And so it makes sense in our product that we're building to really add a lot of data tracking as people interact with the car and check out. Mm -hmm. It might not make so much sense to like add the same amount of data to the customer's profile where they're 
changing their email address or changing their password or setting up their, you know, their account, it might not make so much sense there because that's not where like the business and the product intersect into something that could be valuable. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up and seeing a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. It's pretty great. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash giantrobots, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Once again, thanks to Scout APM for sponsoring today's episode. I worked at a startup and we were doing Internet of Things for scientific labs. So we would hook up to lab equipment, working on experiments. And then our software basically let you aggregate whatever you were measuring from those instruments. And we also did just basic lab monitoring. So like, is your tool still working? If you're not in the lab, you can check in on it. And it was very early days and the kind of world of where can we go with this data that we're capturing and like what data is important was so broad. Mm-hmm. But a few early things that started being interesting was one, we were getting unique information about when specific instruments were about to fail because we were just seeing it over and over again. So being able to understand what are the different things that are happening when an instrument's about to fail? Like, does it have to do with temperature Mm -hmm. or time of day or like how long the experiment's been running? So that was an example of something that we took and then put into like a research report that was available. But then also I was thinking like, okay, well, where can we go with this? You know, we can obviously provide a better user experience to the scientist who can save their experiment. Like, are we going to sell this information to the actual instrument manufacturers themselves so they can improve their instruments or a competitor of the instrument? And you could see where if, you know, we had a certain amount of data, but over time, that becomes a a really interesting thing that figure out how you want to leverage it and and what's the most valuable way, what's, what's the best path. At that startup, was there a team of people that were focused on data? No. There, Mm -hmm. we had no data person, like individual. Mm -hmm. It was, I would say it was a shared endeavor. And and I think this is actually a good thing, especially Mm -hmm. really early on, like 15 people, where you don't have one person who's in charge of who's the data person and they're going to like figure out the answer to what you're doing with your data. But you have people from the business side and the customer success side and the product development who are thinking about it as you continue to work on your different areas. And a big part of it too is user research. What do the scientists, what's important to them or like what's catastrophic to them and how can you start to develop your product in a way that can collect data that can solve those different things? I think it's good for lots of companies to be 
thinking about data and thinking making data driven decisions about their business but it's easy to fall into the trap of like you don't know whether your data is actually good or not and you're pulling like insights out of it when like maybe there's not really anything there and so i oftentimes if we're working on a sales problem or a marketing problem or whatever we like try to go and look at the data it's not always clear whether that's actually meaningful or not because maybe the volume's not right or maybe i think that's probably the most common one is like mm-hmm. if you really don't have enough volume to actually pull out trends and you're just pulling out like anecdotes from right. your data that's not going to lead you to making good decisions you're better off in that aspect of n- probably not letting the data lead you astray and instead just making <laughs> a strategic decision based on like what you believe the company should be or be doing for early in a product's life, are there certain tools you reach for to be aggregating some of this data, like mixed panels and, and things like that? Yeah, there are. And one is driven by the what that problem that I talked about before, where it's really common to be like, oh, we should figure this out. And then you go and you try to do it and you realize, oh, we weren't collecting that data so let's add that instrumentation and then we mm-hmm. we have to wait six months until we co- collected enough to actually run the analysis we wanted. And then the siloing of information between Mixpanel or Google Analytics or whatever. So there's a tool we use on almost all of our products. It's called Segment. And what Segment does is it acts as an intermediary. So you don't add all the individual analytics libraries and everything that you want. You just add Segment and you report all of your events and everything you want to track to Segment. And Segment actually stores everything that you've sent it. And then it forwards it to the services that you've hooked up. So you can say, okay, Segment, send my analytics data to Google Analytics or to Mixpanel. And you can toggle them on and off. The nice thing about that is it allows you to switch services or you have a central repository for all your information that that you can pull things out. So even if this one product doesn't have the function that you need and you need to get your data into it. It can actually essentially take all of the data that segment has been collecting and send it to the new service or the new tool. Uh, It's not locked in Google Analytics or something like that. So that tends to be a pretty powerful thing for a few different reasons for brand new companies. So we use it on almost everything that we do. Another thing that I've seen companies do, which partly because segment is sort of expensive and especially if you have a lot of data, it can get really expensive quickly is to think about actually building that layer in house. Like if you're building a rails app, there's gems you can put in that essentially a very rudimentary analytics tracking or, or place to put our own data inside our own application. And then we'll send it to other places but at least we have one central repository that we know it has everything there and that's that's what it is and we can analyze it. And if we need to move it around or whatever, we, we have complete control over it. Now, most of the companies that I've seen do that, uh, one of the other things that drives it is privacy and security. So it starts in healthcare companies and companies that really have strict data protections that they have to do, they might start to build that stuff internally and track it internally and then only send anonymized information to third parties. Mm-hmm. But there's, a, I think, a growing awareness now in the market. Like, we don't necessarily want to be sending all of our information about 
everything our users are doing, including all of their personal information to Facebook or to Google. So I've seen companies do a hybrid solution where you're tracking everything internally in a system that you own, and then you're choosing what is going to be shared with third parties much more intentionally than just sending everything to them automatically. Mm -hmm. But they make it so nice and easy so that you're drawn to working with them. Yeah. The reason why they do that, I think it's important to take a step back and understand is they want that information so that they can show the users relevant advertising. And, you know, I'm a little biased here, but like the number of products that people are building now that need to use Facebook integration and be sharing that data with Facebook so that Facebook can then run better advertising. It's going down a lot. Like there's not a lot that Facebook gives you now that users actually use. That means you should be integrating with Facebook at a product level. Mm -hmm. Five years ago, it was like, oh, we're going to have a Facebook login button. And like, there was just no questions asked, right? Or there's like a like button on everything. You could like anything. (laughs) Right. And unless there's a product reason, like that doesn't make your product better. What we find is that people actually like use that pretty infrequently relative to other things, unless it's super compelling part of your product. So if you're just throwing that stuff everywhere, not only are you giving your users data to Facebook, you're doing it in a way that sort of adds cruft to your product. Like that's not even useful. And like we have an app where we implemented Facebook login, you know, four years ago or whatever, less than 20% of the people, nobody knew is using it. Like (laughs) this is actually sort of heartening in that like new users don't sign in with Facebook. I think awareness now of not using it is high. And so new users aren't choosing to sign up. Less than 20% of all users ever did use it. And now it's a maintenance burden. It's an extra button on the login screen that people need to decide how they're going to log into the app, that kind of thing. Nowadays, I think we're much more thoughtful about what services we integrate with and who we're sending our users data to. Products and data, we're bound to go down the Facebook Mm -hmm. path, Facebook and, and Google, which were... Probably the first to really keep me honest here, but build a business off off of people's personal data. Maybe not the first, but like Google's super interesting to me because Facebook just collects the data essentially to run meaningful advertising. It wasn't until Facebook made a product change to use data to make the product more valuable that it like sort of ramped up and took it to another stage. And that was when Facebook introduced the feed. So prior to Facebook introducing the feed, there was really no part of the product of Facebook that used user data to make the product more useful or meaningful to people. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until they wanted to make more money advertising (laughs) that they needed to figure out a way to make the product itself used data in a meaningful way. And that was the feed so that they could then run native advertising in the feed that was relevant to users. And if you're going to run relevant advertising, then you also want to put relevant content in the feed for people. Google, on the other hand, has had, I'm blanking on what this is, this is called, but basically it's like when you have a data feedback cycle in your product where 
your users are using the product in a way which is adding data about users, which is then making the product work better. And mm-hmm. it's like this, the cycle of that. Google has actually had that from the beginning, from my perspective, because search results, I think they've always, if not always, then for a very long time, tracked what people are clicking on when they get search results. And so there's been that cycle in the Google search product from the beginning, irrelevant of advertising. It like was, a data flywheel? Yeah. So where, okay, if a user searched for this and we displayed these 10 results and they clicked on the third one, that makes it more likely that that's the result that they wanted. And over thousands of users searching for that same term, the search results actually change based on which one people have clicked on. And I think Google has been doing that for a really long time. So it's really interesting to me because what makes Google bad or good or or whatever when it comes to a, a product then unlocks their business model, which is advertising. So many of the products in the world don't build businesses off of advertising. Like so many of the customers that we work with, that kind of thing, they're building a business or a product people are paying money for directly. So whether it's that food delivery application or whether it's an e-commerce site or whatever, they're, they're all selling a product that people are paying money for. And I think once you turn advertising into the mix, that's where it's really easy to go wrong. So like, was Facebook the first people or were Google the first people to use data in this way? No, there was probably lots of companies that were using data to create a data flywheel, like to make the product better based on what people were doing. But it's once you throw advertising into the mix where that's actually how you're making money, then it messes up the incentives of the people creating the product because your primary goal then is not to make your product better. It's to make your advertising better and more lucrative. And that's where those companies then start doing things with that data that people don't like. Unfortunately, what Facebook and Google and other companies have done with data gives sometimes data a bad name or like there's nothing inherently wrong with collecting information about the people that are interacting with your product if your goal is to make the product better for them or to like improve the world or your product in some way using that data. It's only when you start doing things that aren't in the user's best interest with that data that you start to really run afoul of it. You know, this had been a growing concern, I think, in tech, but became a global concern when we saw the influence of Facebook on the 2016 election as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, you can argue how much Facebook knew or not, but at the end of the day, let's call them bad actors, we're, we're able to share very specific targeted propaganda to different groups in order to impact a presidential election. Mm-hmm. And then the Zuck was brought before Congress and, and all of a sudden everyone was trying to figure out what, you know, wait, who has, which of the apps have my data and what do they have and what are they allowed to do, to do with it? Yeah. And, and, you know, not long after we got the GDPR in Europe and, the GDPR really isn't meant to solve that, that problem. And to be honest, like if you're concerned about this, if you're a person who is concerned about it, 
and whether you're in Europe or not, it's pretty safe to say that this problem actually hasn't been fixed at all. The GDPR does certain things around not moving data around, making sure that it's more secure, introducing the concept of essentially like the right to be forgotten or being able to remove yourself from a database. But it really focuses more on like disclosure and punishment and some basic ground rules. It doesn't really do anything to stop the prospect of bad actors using, for example, targeted advertising to influence people. Like Mm -hmm. there's no solution to that problem in any of the legislation in the US or Europe that's been introduced. Well, I think, you know, in the last few years, it's also become painfully obvious as we've seen politicians basically interview the tech CEOs, how little they understand Mm -hmm. the companies or the apps or how data is stored and shared, which is disconcerting. (laughs) I don't know. There's just, it has gotten to the point where you have these mega companies I think some form of regulation is probably appropriate to protect the average person who doesn't understand this. I especially like the disclosure elements of GDPR, even though it's tough to enact it. Mm-hmm. When you actually like read through the documentation, common sense, like what would constitute, you know, a notification or language that the average person would understand about what they are opting into? Yeah, I completely 100% agree with you. But at the same time, (laughs) I think people in general, the world in general, needs to come to grips with the fact that so much data is collected about everything. And with the application of machine learning, or even just analysis of that data, things can be pulled out of it that we could never have anticipated and aren't necessarily able to be proactively. Um, Mm. So, for example, I was at an event at the place where I went to college, WPI, and they were presenting a research project where they had taken people's Spotify listening data, and there's a seven-question or four-question survey to see whether you're inclined or have depression that doctors give. And... What they were able to do is they gave a few hundred people that survey. They saw how they scored. And then they use a Spotify listening data set. And they basically combined those two things. They came up with a model where they could analyze anybody's Spotify listening data and make a determination about whether they might be depressed or not. No way. Yeah. So and it worked? Like, yeah. Um, you know, with some high percentage correlation to the actual test that was given. Those are mostly emo. <laughs> yeah. No, they, they said if you actually look at the songs, it's really not anything like that. That's the thing about this. And I guess my larger point is like, it's mm-hmm. not like, oh, the people are listening to a bunch of sad songs and, and we can then figure out that they're... It's like in the data over millions of people, there's trends there. So like our cars, for example, are going to be collecting tons of data about how we drive, and how we behave when we're in our cars. There's obvious applications to that. Like, we don't want the insurance companies to have that because then they could use our driving habits against us to Mm. increase our rates. But 
we have to understand that the amount of data that those cars are collecting, who knows what if you analyze that behavioral data about everyone in the world or millions of people, you could say, oh, if you drive this way, that's a good indicator that you might be depressed. Hmm. And I don't think it's possible. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm very skeptical that it's possible to write regulations or something like that that are going to prevent that without Mm. completely saying like you just can't collect data in that way because as long as products are collecting more and more data it's going to be possible to analyze that data and pull out correlations that never could have been anticipated do you think organizations collecting data have some ethical responsibilities definitely Good. I mean, I I think all companies have ethical responsibilities. (laughs) Um, It's not an easy problem to solve for. You you also just can't rely on people being good, like because the people collecting the data today aren't necessarily the people who have it tomorrow as Mm -hmm. well. And so I think the concept of people owning their data, individual users owning their data, as opposed to the companies that are collecting it, is it probably a really powerful road to go down that mm. could help with those problems? Because if users, individual users own the data instead of the companies, that gives a little bit of power to the users to be able to say, you just can't do anything you want with it. Right. And then that would sort of curb this sort of like what I was throwing out there as like coming up with random correlations that people can't have even ever anticipated If you don't own it to begin with, you might be less inclined to just do that and to Mm -hmm. do those kinds of projects. Yeah, I agree. That concept really appeals to me. By no means am I an expert on any of this. So like, I look forward to talking about more specific things with the guests because I think they're going to be able to take a lot of the general things that we're talking about now and like think about how it applies to their product and their business and how they're using data to make their product better or to create value and and those kinds of things. Yeah. I'm curious if they are are having, you know, this similar conversation that you and I had today internally around, you know, what is appropriate to use and how do they use it? And all three of them, they're pretty different, which is Mm -hmm. cool. So like Take Metrics has been at this for well, a while in startup years. And they're very actively using the data they collect as a mm-hmm. core part of the product. Yeah. And, you know, as a reminder, they, they have lots of e-commerce data about activity that's happening on Amazon and, and other platforms now. And they're able to take that and provide actionable insights to the store owners. But they're also able to do things automatically in their platform. Yeah. And they're actually using machine learning in the product, right? Who really knows now anymore, Lindsay? I feel like a lot of companies say that they do. and It's just if-then statements. Right. So so we'll actually need to pin them down, I think. We'll need to get Alistair pinned down around whether they're actually using machine learning or not. Okay, I like that. And then Shearshare, honestly, was one of the sparks to talk Mm -hmm. about data more. Our last chat with them They're joining a Google Accelerator specifically around AI and machine learning, which they don't have yet, with the prospect of learning from Google how they could move the company forward in one of those directions. And then my understanding from the conversations we've had so far with Nurse One is that they're actually 
actively avoiding using machine learning and instead focusing on the human connections and that sort of thing. So it'll be interesting to hear about how they've thought about what that means for their product and scale. And I don't think that means they're not collecting data about user behavior and like time mm-hmm. on site and you know interactions and everything. I would be very surprised if that was the case. But when it comes to that actual nurse connection, I think they're focused on human. Right. And then we'll check back in with Michael in three years and see <laughs> if he caved and the nurses are all AI now. Yeah. If people have questions, get them in to hosts at giantrobots.fm. You can also go to giantrobots.fm and fill out the contact form there. We'll get your questions and we'll be able to ask them of the founders. And then we'll have your data. And we'll have your data. So there you go. It's full circle. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. And you can find me on Twitter at lindsay3d. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at that website, giantrobots.fm. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.